Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Marc Antoine, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 46. And our sponsor for today is Optal. Today on the show, we have myself, Eric St. Martin, and also on the show, who is the birthday boy today, uh, Mr. Brian Kettleson. Say hello, Brian. Is it really episode 46 on my 46th birthday? It is. That's precious. Wow. <laughs> Incredible. That's so special. And I'd say we'd sing for you, but we tried that once and latency was terrible. <laughs> no, we're singing. Damn it. <laughs> There will be singing. Marc Antoine will do it. He already told me. (laughs) And also on the show, we have Carlicia Pinto. Say hello, Carlicia. Hi, everybody. And and as Brian just said, our special guest for today is Marc Antoine Rowe. Now, do you want to give everybody like maybe a little bit of background of like who who you are and kind of what you're working on? And then we'll get into your project, which was recently released, which is you call it. Do you just call it perif, or do you pronounce the IO in the in the domain? Um, excellent question. I actually have no idea how to pronounce it. So. <laughs> pronounce it because he never says it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, so I'm Marc Antoine. I'm um, I've been working at Google for ten years now. Um, before that, I used to work with many different companies that failed in various ways. Uh, so interestingly, I work in Python most of my job. Uh, so, but I really like doing Go. So for personal projects, I do Go projects. So the one that has been the most popular is Panic Parse, which is a very simple tool to uh, process uh, stack traces. So yeah, that's pretty much it. I live in um, in the Ottawa region in Canada. So it's a pretty nice region. Uh, I really, really love it there. Excellent. We're all actually considering moving up to be near you because we're all going to lose our health care today. So uh, Canada, we hear, has a very nice health care system. Is that true? Yes. Uh, well, actually, it has its own kinks, um, it, but it's really only two days. But you have it. Yeah, but you have one. <laughs> <laughs> But the fun thing is, only really today I realized that in the United States, you cannot have uh, chemotherapy for free. And it was such a given for me that was like, oh no, people actually die because they cannot afford like uh, treatments. And yeah, it's just sad. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in our in Canada, the, the difference is that if you're rich, you don't actually get to get that much better healthcare. So yeah, that's different challenges. It took me how many minutes to get into politics? <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. That was a record. <laughs> he, he was just sitting on that button. <laughs> but today is a tough day. Um, it is so. a very tough day. Yeah. yeah. So on a more exciting note, your project, uh, Perif, or Perif, I'm going to yeah. say Perifio or oh, Perifio. Yeah. 
it, it rolls off the tongue better than just perif, I think. That's true. So you haven't learned to pronounce it yet. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make up the pronunciation on the show. You have heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Uh, so the funny thing is that it started like uh, in 2014. Back in uh, at that time, uh, there's a company named GroupGets, and they wanted to test their platforms. It was a small startup, and they started to do like uh, Googlers only um, selling of uh, the Flare Lepton, which is a infrared camera. And so I, I bought one. And I was like, yeah, I have an infrared camera. And now uh, what do I do with it? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so then at that point, I decided to say, well, I'm going to write a driver for it in Go because I wasn't really happy with the, the code that uh, was provided with the device. Now, I have an important question for you. Is this uh, infrared camera heat proof? Uh, no, no. So it's actually designed to look at temperatures. So the FLIR company makes infrared cameras to be able to read temperature via infrared uh, images. So it, it's not like the low-light cameras that you can see in the dark. It's really just about uh, looking at temperature. Still sounds interesting. I already see where you're going with this, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's actually... I know what's your question. So... Um, I don't recall what's the highest temperature it can register, so but I think it's probably limited. melt. <laughs> it will probably melt. Uh, but yeah, so basically I started writing code uh, for that in two thousand in early two thousand fifteen. Uh, so I had a lot of fun with it, but uh, the device was kind of tricky to interface, and I had a lot of trouble keeping a good signal. But on the other end, I started learning like uh, with the web sockets and a lot of things that I didn't know about before. So it, I used it as a learning experience, and it was was really really cool. So and then in the summer, I attended the first GooferCon, and uh, I saw the GoBot room, and then I realized it existed because I didn't. I actually I didn't realize before. And um, by the time it didn't support SPI protocol, which is needed for, for this camera. So I was like, ah, yeah, okay, not too bad. And um, But then eventually I just dropped the project on the floor. And um, later in the Christmas uh, period, then Brad Fitzpatrick uh, did his uh, Christmas light on, on Christmas evening. I was like, oh, that's, that's a neat idea. So I bought a few um, LED strips. Um, they are quite expensive in Canada, so Amazon doesn't re really have any role of them. So basically, I bought them directly on Alibaba. Uh, so I bought like 12 rows of 5 meters each and uh, then sold a few back to uh, to colleagues, basically. <laughs> and <laughs> so I became a pusher of LEDs. And... Um, and I decided to to start the project that I named Libux, basically, and wrote my own uh, driver for that. And the reason I, I decided to go with this uh, this one in particular is because I wanted to do uh, night lights for for my children's room. So these can go really really dark. So for, uh, actually really faint uh, in the in the brightness because uh, they have two different PWMs that you can use uh, simultaneously to to lower the the, the amount of light it emits. So because of that, I was actually able to to make them so that uh, basically you can have a very, very faint lighting that you can uh, keep um, in the room for the whole night. So it's it's pretty nice. That's fantastic. I have uh, 
long, very long, maybe 15 meter LED strips under the bunk beds in all of my kids' room because underneath the bunk bed gets almost no light at all. So they even use those during the daytime, but it would be awesome to be able to control the brightness of those. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah, otherwise it becomes for, uh, depending on, uh, on the, the kind of light, it can be very, very bright and then it, it's kind of aggressive, uh, especially in the night. So yeah, mm-hmm. be, uh, having the possibility to, to, to have very, very uh, faint light is really, really nice. Now this is controllable through the SPI bus or this yeah. is just like doing PWM or something? Uh, no, it's SPI bus. So one of the nice thing about these lights is that each of the device has its own set of PWMs. Actually, there's four PWMs uh, per light. So one per channel, so basically one red, one green, and one blue. And then there's another wall one. So basically there's another all brightness and then one per channel. So what I did on the, in the driver is that I tried to use the channel PWMs. And one, I go to the very, very dim coloring then i start using the other one so basically i use a ramp a gamma ramp so that for example if you ask a 50 percent uh, light intensity in practice you get around 10 percent because that's that's how the eyes see the light so one of the first thing I, I did was to actually get this roughly 13 bits of precision and put it back into eight bits of precision so that i could have eight bit pixels but i Still extending the brightness as perceived by the eye, so that that has given really really nice results. And so now, is this like a do you have like a Raspberry Pi or like a BeagleBone running a Go process that controls this? Yeah, so I started with a Raspberry Pi. Uh, I really wanted to to run well on the Raspberry Pi one, just for the fun of it. I I wanted to to see if I could perform uh, do performance optimization on that. Um, and eventually I just bought a, f- a fair chunk of Raspberry Pi trees. Uh, the main advantage of the tree is that it boots faster. So <laughs> when the power is cut out or whatever <laughs> happens, it's much faster to boot. So yeah, but the, the way it works, it, it's really not Raspberry Pi specific at all. So basically, as long as you have a SPI bus, it just works. That's very nice. So then I started to look at, uh, take a look at more serious projects. And uh, so once it started working, uh, it was uh, closer to summer of uh, last year. Then um, I decided to look at, uh, well, actually, I, I started talking with uh, Jana, uh, Jana, and um, I saw that she had been working on standardizing SPI uh, protocol there. So I was like, oh, okay, but I've been working on this other side project and um, I decided to start looking at how we could reconciliate that. Uh, So a lot of discussion happened uh, during the summer and um, eventually I got one of the things that I really, really wanted to have was to have a real driver registry. And uh, one of the foundation of Perif itself is that um, you can really have device driver in the light sense, in the, in the sense that it's really just uh, classes uh, go structs, basically. But um, I, w- I wanted to, to have a way so that they would just appear automatically and be discovered uh, by the library. And that's really one of the foundation I wanted to explore. 
And um, one of the reasons is that actually in a previous life, I used to, to do kernel uh, development on Windows at Matrix, a video card maker in the early, uh, actually in the late 90s. And um, I was doing uh, industrial imaging uh, of a firewire in 1980, uh, 1394. And uh, it was really nice. Like I had like 1,000 frames uh, per second cameras, uh, which was very, very amazing at that time. Um, uh, but I was working on Windows NT4, so the trade-off was... <laughs> 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 I was stuck on a really crappy OS. But on the other hand, I got to learn a lot about um, kernel development. And for example, Windows NT4 didn't have any uh, net support for plug and play. So it was really a pain to work with. But uh, then Windows 2000 came out and it was awesome, obviously. Uh, but <laughs> at least it worked. And uh, so basically this concept of uh, managing uh, discoveries of device. Well, actually, at the time, I, di I didn't want to have discovery of device, but I wanted to have the discovery of the functionality provided by the host. So I thought I experimented with that for uh, many months, and I finally got something that I liked maybe in October or, or November of last year. How do you um, encapsulate that sort of, uh, I mean, it's almost like, like service discovery for the host. How does that look at a conceptual level yeah so uh basically it i wanted to create a registry so basically what happens is that uh there's the um each of the driver driver that you want to register Perif provides a few they are registered automatically when per, you, you the driver specifies the dependencies it has so for example, right now I'm working on a DME controller uh, driver so basically it depends on the fact for example, for the Raspberry Pi uh, CPU, it's the BCM, um, I forget the number, but uh, 2735 or 37. It's not worth trying to load a driver, for example, the DMA, if it didn't load at least the GPIO driver, for example. Mm. So basically, it registers a DAG. So it's really a directed graph of all the drivers, and each of the drivers specify which other drivers they, they need to be able to worth trying to to be loaded so the, the library makes sure that the dag is actually good valid there's no cycle things like that and once it, it detects that it's valid uh, it tries to load uh, the drivers in parallel as much as it can based on, on the dependency tree so basically it, call, it calls the initialization function on each of them but so the, the driver can return uh, three different states so either it's ignored because it's just not relevant on on the platform uh, so, for example, the driver for uh, the chip uh, pinout is not worth if it's not that running on the Alwinner CPU. There's uh, also it was valid and it worked, or it was valid and it failed to load. So, for example, um, on most platforms, if it's not running as root, by default, most of the operating systems, uh, well, the Linux distributions are not uh, configured in a way where you can use uh, for example, SPI arbitrarily uh, without running as root or yourself modifying the access uh, on the uh, SysFS or DevFS file, uh, virtual files. So all of this is meant to kind of create an abstraction, kind of like layers. Yeah. Because I noticed that you, you had some drivers for like um, like maximum temperature sensors and or the Dallas temperature sensors and things like that. 
So basically, you would include one of those, and then it tries to load, you know, the SPI driver or something like that. Actually, it's the reverse. So when you start it up, it tries to discover all the hardware features of the platform of the host itself, but it doesn't try to discover anything attached to it. So to not start interfering or anything like that. So then it's really up to the application, basically. Okay, yeah. So it, it tries to discover whether things like SPI or I2C or UART is available on the board. Yeah. And then from there, you kind of take control of those connections. Exactly. So, for example, if you take a chip, by default, the SPI is not enabled. Uh, so it will not be loaded. So then when you request SPI bus, or, well, the SPI connection, it will refuse because it didn't find any. So if you then follow the instruction to enable it, then after that, it will be uh, available. And when you request one, it will give you the, f the first one available. Well, there's only one. So <laughs> it's simple in this case. Uh, but the uh, the general idea is really about all the underlying platform support to to have that as automatic as possible, basically. So the part of the device drivers, basically, I started writing device drivers because I felt that I couldn't implement the uh, underlying host drivers without having something to test again. Uh, so I started like uh, playing with devices that had really tricky. Handling. Good examples are, for example, the BME uh, 2AD. Uh, one of the reasons I decided to start using it is that it supports both SPI and I2C. But the way the protocol works in SPI is very different from I2C. So I wanted to be able to write a device driver that would be able to talk both the dialect, but uh, in a way that would abstract out the fact that underlying there's a different protocol involved. On the uh, SSD 1306, uh, it's also a dual protocol device that can talk I2C and SPI. But the difference there is that it actually, first, it's a write-only device, but also when you write over SPI, you have to play with one of the, the, the CS line kind of manually. It's, it's kind of weird. Uh, or you can use um, a 9-bit SPI protocol. I actually haven't finished it, but that really helped me uh, understand better how the what feature the host driver, the SPI host driver, had to ex expose, basically. Yeah, one thing I saw, too, was you have one-wire support, which is kind of fun. I'm actually using that for uh, some temperature sensors that I have, for thermocouple sensors. Yeah, actually, um, the one-wire uh, hasn't been uh, written by me at all. It's... Um, Torsten uh, wrote it. Gosh, I forget his full name. I'm sorry. Uh, Torsten von Aiken. He's, uh, he contributed a lot, really a lot to the project. So he was the, the one that did all of the one-wire uh, code. So he started with a, a device that is connected over uh, I2C and then can expose a one-wire bus over it. So basically, the, the nice thing about that is that if you register this device, then uh, the one-wire bus can be registered on the one-wire bus registry, and then you can access the one-wire bus transparently without knowing that it's actually over another bus. And that just works. Uh, he also wrote, uh, well, actually designed the Perif tester board. So basically, it's a board that has um, EEPROM, 
and the device that exposes uh, one wire. And uh, so basically it can test SPI, uh, EEPROM over SPI, if I recall correctly, and EEPROM over one wire. So this way we can make sure that all of these protocols are not um, broken by any kind of change, basically. So it's really awesome. It's being tested uh, continuously. So basically every time we uh, there's a change pushed, the the smoke tests are are tested on this port. That's awesome. So I think we are a little over time for our first sponsor break. So let's take that. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the kind of performance uh, stuff. I know we chatted behind the scenes a little bit about some of the performance differences, uh, like using this for doing things like bit banging. Perfect. So our first sponsor for today is TopTal. Hey everyone, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. Our friends at TopTal have been sponsoring our podcast for years, and now they're sponsoring GoTime as well. We think they're one of the best ways to hire developers and designers, as well as one of the best ways to freelance as a software developer or designer. Head to toptal.com slash go to learn more. Tell them you heard about them on GoTime. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. And now back to the show. All right, and we are back talking to Mark Antoine. So just before the break, um, I wanted to hear, we were talking about kind of the performance differences, and we had talked a little bit about um, how you, you kind of have the DMA, the direct memory access support, and you had done some things for performance of bit banging. So uh, it's still a work in progress, so it's not uh, fully live yet. So basically what I realized is, like, and that's actually one of the reasons I decided to go with this project is that there's already C projects that do bit banging, well, leveraging, uh, abusing the DMA controller. I think it's a better word uh, in user mode. And basically, the idea is that uh, you memory map the GPUs and the CPUs uh, DMA controller uh, registers, and you start messing with it uh, live which is actually a very dangerous thing to do, but experience has shown that it actually worked. And the idea there is that basically uh, you tell the GPU, well, you tell the GPU to allocate physical memory for you, and that part is working. And then after that, you tell the DMA controller to take this the memory there and bang it to the uh, GPIO uh, registers. So um, this is kind of a funny idea. So basically, it works in C. Uh, there's Python bindings, which uh, is the RPO. I forget the exact name, but it's a very popular library. And I basically said, well, let's do one in Go uh, so that there's no there no other need for uh, requiring any C uh, libraries for to do that. So I started playing with that, and then I realized, mm, if I want to do this kind of stuff, I need to do it in a way that works on multiple CPUs. So then I started working on the all-winner uh, CPUs. So I have a few boards uh, based on all-winner CPUs, and I started looking at it. Uh, after uh, a lot of look into the uh, the very deep into the, the CPU architecture, I realized that this family of CPUs do not allow access from the DMA controller to the GPIO uh, registers. So that actually this mechanism cannot work on this processors, sadly. Uh, someone on the uh, RC uh, channel, uh, Sun C on Freenode, helped me with that, because otherwise I wouldn't have never figured out. Uh, I forget the name of the person, but takes a lot. 
<laughs> so, but on the other processors, for example, like the bigger bone, it could be uh, pr- possible. I just didn't get to that point yet. So basically, the idea there is is really just that you can do bit banging and have it done by the DMA controller. Or uh, the reverse is to basically have your own logic analyzer, basically that can run uh, without having to to take a full CPU. Um, on the other hand, uh, because it's using memory map uh, GPIO uh, registers, you can actually read very fast, and basically you can abuse the the system by taking a full core and uh, have the, this full core just doing a boozy loop of reading a, a register. Uh, then you just happen that to a circular buffer, basically. And uh, then another core can uh, just update that to the to the UI basically. So that's that's one of the thing I was actually looking at uh, probably doing, where uh, it's purely CPU based, so it takes a lot more processing power. But on the other end, you don't need any kind of messing with the the kernel. So that's that's actually a, a saner option. And and I know a lot of uh, our listeners too probably aren't. Uh, all hardware people. Mm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about like what DMA is and why you would want to use that. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, that's that's a good <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, so basically, DMA means uh, direct memory access. Um, so it's a, a kind of a small controller inside your CPU. Well, aside, but mostly in the in the chip uh, that uh, can do a bit shoveling basically. So it can copies memory from one page to another on the behalf of the CPU. Uh, one of the big use of that, for example, is when you're reading uh, from a hard drive. Uh, for a long time, the hard drive has been doing DMA uh, for uh, pushing the, um, the bits from the hard drive to the memory on the, on the behalf of the CPU, but without having the CPU to, 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 to bother with it. And then at the end, just says, hey, I'm done. Here's the bit on, on the page. So it really helps uh, because then uh, you can do these, which takes time, but without incurring any cost on the CPU side. So uh, it's very important on single core systems. So for example, if you take a Raspberry Pi W, the zero, you only have a single core. Uh, So in that case, uh, you really need to free up as much as you can. Uh, So that's one way to, to achieve that. Now, while we're talking here, I installed uh, perif.io on the Raspberry Pi that's running my barbecue grill right now. And on that particular board, we've got pin 22 that controls the relay that turns the fan on and off while the, um, the blower controls the temperature of the barbecue grill. And I, I just set that with a, a watch command on the terminal, and I'm watching the output of your GPIO dash list command that comes with perif.io. And it's so much fun just watching uh, GPIO 22 go from out low to out high, out low, out high, as the fan goes on and off. These are some really great tools. There's there's three commands that are shipped with uh, perif.io. There's uh, perif-info, which I pasted the, in, the uh, output of that into the Slack channel. And then there's headers-list, and then there's GPIO dash list, and all of them worked beautifully on the Raspberry Pi that I have. That's really cool. Yeah, actually, there's uh, even more than that. Let me paste that on the uh, on the channel. Uh, so um, 
I wrote actually that one of the first way that I decided to test devices was to write one executable per de- device driver. So you're not required to to use them, but it's a nice way to figure out how to start uh, your application basically. So if you want to use, uh, for example, the APA 102, uh, you can just look at it and it already has uh, functionality, for example, uh, animating the lights uh, based on the ping image or things like that. So most of them are not, I really meant to make sure that your device works well. They, they are not necessarily exposing a lot of functionality but enough to, to be able to, to get by. So the GPIO ones are really useful when you just want to do a quick switch of, of value or just reading quickly. And uh, it's, it's pretty nice. That's awesome. So I think you had mentioned too that you had been playing with like the pocket chip too. Yeah. Um, so the pocket chip is kind of neat. Um, basically a chip. So it's a very uh, low power single core system with half a gig of RAM. Uh, it runs like a custom distribution uh, that is based on Debian, uh, and it actually exposes uh, I2C, SPI, and a few GPIO uh, on the top of it. Uh, so actually, my goal has been to uh, expose the. Uh, basically, you can connect um, a FLIR lepton, so then you have a portable infrared camera. Uh, it's not fully working yet because I've been fighting a lot with the SPI driver on the chip. Uh, but beside that, uh, it's a pretty nice uh, hardware uh, because it has its own battery, so it can it can actually last a, a lot many hours. Uh, I've been using it for like uh, five hours and it was fine. And you can actually build on it, so I literally just start up BI and edit my code and and build my Go projects on it. So it's a pretty nice uh, device for that. Do you prefer it over a Pi? Well, it's different because the chip is much cheaper than the Pi. And it has Wi-Fi, which I think it got announced before the Raspberry Pi 3, which had Wi-Fi. So it's it's a different market. The, The Pi is incredibly faster. But on the other end, you have to buy a SD card while the chip already has 4 gig of flash on board. So because of that, yeah, the total cost of the chip is much lower. And the fact that it has a, bat- a battery connector in- included is also a plus because then you can run It's very, very easy to run it uh, on a lithium battery and you can char- it can charge the lithium battery too. So because of that, the, the, the use case are slightly different than the, the Pi. Uh, so it, it, up to an extent, it's closer to the Pi Zero, but still, uh, the Pi Zero doesn't have a battery charger, as, of, as far as I know. I actually just got one in the mail, but I didn't have the time to, to open it yet. So for embedded stuff, or not embedded stuff, but for stuff to be carried on, it, it's very nice. Um, so yeah, it's 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 something I, I really like a lot. One one thing I wanted to to backtrack though is um, when I started the project uh, on Perif is that I wasn't sure if actually if I were going to do it or not. And um, Thorsten Van Eken, which I referenced to earlier, uh, he reached out to me um, in in September or so of last year. And he was already contributing to Embed. And 
then it was you look at the way I was discussing the uh, the design. It was like, oh, I think you have a you have a point here, and it's it's really worth. So uh, basically, I use this knowledge in this area to be able to uh, to have someone to discuss with until the project became public. And he did all of the code reviews, which really helped me to to structure the project. Um, I decided to make it private for a long time because I really wanted to refactor the hell out of it. And basically, when you have a project and you have no user, you cannot break anyone. So that's the best thing ever because then nobody's complaining. They are not using it. Uh, but the problem is that eventually you want to have users. So the the, the line there was uh, when to make it public uh, versus keeping the the liberty of breaking the library as much as I wanted. And eventually I got the pressure to actually release it because eventually I just wanted to have something people wanted to use it. But at the same time, I still feel that it's not I haven't feel right now that it's not good enough in the design, and I really want to to change uh, a lot of features. For example, the SPI driver, I'm not happy still with the, with the current design of the interfaces. So you mentioned a Go HCI. Is that a CI system that you built specifically for this package? And can you kind of describe how that works? Yeah, so uh, Go HCI is basically my... CI system for the cheaps, uh, so <laughs> for the cheap people. So basically, what happens that I I I was at the point where I was I had to decide if I were to pursue that as a project or just leave it there and it works and it's fine. And I really felt that if I wanted it to be a real project, it needed to well three things. First, the designer could be happy with it long term. Uh, second. Uh, a way to ensure that the quality of the code itself stays good, and third, a, a website to host the documentation. So I worked on the uh, quality of the code with the uh, Go HCI. So basically, what it is is it's really a cheap hack. So it uh, runs a service. Basically, I, I started via systemd, and um, it exposes a web server, uh, which basically you trigger uh, GitHub webhooks, and when there's one that based on, on the parameters, it decides to do a test run uh, based on the commits on the, the PR or the commit that, that is uh, referenced by the web hook. And basically what it does is that it runs a predefined set of, um, of comments. So basically it's the same as uh, Travis or any other uh, CI system or for example, drone that you can also run locally. Uh, the only thing is that I didn't want to pay for a server because I'm super cheap. So, so basically what I decided to say is that, well, actually on GitHub, you, you can save, um, you, you can save uh, GIST. And it's actually free, and you can save multiple files inside the GIST. And uh, well, it could be just the STDO, uh, the STD out of the, the comments being run. So I started playing with this idea. I just wrote a hack in, in three hours, and I realized that it was actually working well. So I generalized it uh, slightly more, but not too much. Uh, and I really wanted it to be a solution specifically for hardware testing, which you cannot use with Travis or any other kind of, of services. Well, actually, probably Travis you can do, but uh, I wanted to try with the, with the free implementation. So uh, the nice thing with it is that every time there's a commit, it will run 
but the tests are specific to the hardware it's running on. So for example, if the board running uh, GoHCI as a tester board, it will run the smoke test related to that. Otherwise, I can run the GPIO smoke test to make sure that edge triggering is good or things like that. So, so there's actually a fair number of smoke tests and the smoke test uh, tests all kind of, uh, of logic in the library that is better tested when you have uh, hardware to test against. So there's, there's still a unit test and the unit tests are run on Travis and it works great. But uh, sometimes you're testing also the, the operating system underneath and the hardware itself. So I really wanted to have the distinction between uh, the hardware testing and the uh, unit testing. And it's kind of um, the side effect of my work, day, my, my day job, basically. Where I'm working on the Chrome infrastructure, and uh, I've been working on that since 2008. And Chrome is a really large project, and there's a lot of unit tests and a lot of smoke tests, too. And um, the current scale at which Chrome runs is pretty intense. We, there's like over 200 commits per day. And a single test can uh, represent up to like around 30 hours of test for a single commit. So uh, the scale at which it runs is, is very high. And I was like, yeah, let's do the complete reverse. Like do something very, very simple to see how far I can go. So that, that's basically how it happened. Um, so yeah, it's it's very, very focused project for a very single purpose job. Uh, it fits the deal fine, so I'm I'm very happy about it. That sounds amazing. It sounds like it would be a really good uh, blog post. Yeah, yeah, um, yes, I should. <laughs> I'm I'm really not good at writing blog posts. Actually, <laughs> which brings me to the website. Uh, I had a lot a lot of pain <laughs> to 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 create a website, and. Um, one of the fun things is that I realized that there was the, the freebie uh, Google Cloud VMs that you could get, like the, the very, very cheapest one, which had mm -hmm. like a, a fifth of a CPU. And I was like, yeah, there's something free. Uh, so, <laughs> so I started playing with it. And uh, one of the hack I did is um, I used, uh, there, there's a, an image there that is uh, based on Chrome OS. And they call it container OS. But basically, the idea is that the only thing you can run on it is Docker. And um, so basically, what I said was, mm, you know what? If it can run Docker, it can run Caddy. So my, my, my idea was, mm, let's see. And basically, what I did is that I fired up a VM. I look at all the paths that uh, were mounted as executable. And I just SCP'd uh, Caddy uh, there and tried to run it. and. Obviously, it worked because uh, of Go static linking. So basically, I completely abused the operating system there to, to be able to run Caddy out of a Docker image. And it works ex incredibly well, actually. So that's pretty neat because the, the operating system takes like pretty like uh, 100 and a half, maybe 150 megs of RAM. And Caddy itself like takes maybe 15 meg of RAM as resident RAM. So it's very, very low memory um, system and uh, it works great in this situation. Uh, but writing uh, this website, because I knew that the website was very important, 
and that documentation mattered. But at the same time, I'm not that good at writing documentation. So a lot of iteration went on that before making the project public. And uh, one of the nice things is that I asked my daughter to draw the, uh, the mascot. And uh, at first, she was kind of um, afraid of doing it. But eventually, she uh, she accepted to try it out. And so she drew the, the small mascot there, which I really, really like. Uh, so I'm very happy that she did. Yeah, that thing is adorable. Yeah, it is. <laughs> He's got his little w- wired up backpack in the LED. <laughs> yeah. So um, other things also that I did was the, doing outreach to people. Uh, one of the first person I tried to talk to was uh, well, Yana. That actually she I kept contact with her for pretty much the whole cycle. I also discussed uh, with Ron from uh, the maintainer of Gobat. Um, he's a busy guy, but uh, was able to to get a hold of, on him for uh, an hour and a half. I was very very glad that he took the time to talk with me, and uh, we've discussed uh, ways where the bigger picture would fit. So basically, my take has been that I actually don't care that much about writing device driver, as I said before. Most of the device I wrote were really just to test the underlying code for the uh, host operating system drivers. So I tried to position the library as much as low level that would fit under Gobot. Uh, that said, it's not a given that there's a way to to make everything work as 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 much as I'd like. But that's that's definitely the goal I'm trying to aim for. Basically, as I wrote in in the web page, uh, as an enabler to be able to access as much functionality as, as uh, it's exposed by the operating system. So yeah, I'm uh, hopeful that we'll uh, continue working together. Uh, one of the things actually I'm, I'm trying to, to make work uh, go HCI with the uh, pull request better, and I'll probably fire up like the first GoBot uh, worker there. So if that works well, it, it's going to be great. That's really cool. I'd love to see these two projects work together more if possible. Yeah, Gobot is a great project, and and the perif.io looks pretty darn amazing to me. Yeah, the one of the reason I decided to start my own stuff instead of contributing upstream directly is that actually I didn't know what I wanted, and I didn't know how it would look like, and I felt uh, that I really needed to experiment a lot. So, and if you look at the history of the the commits, it's like. You, you you go back in time and you see how all the packages are different and the interface are have been shuffled around uh, a lot and um, I don't know maybe I'm just a visual person but I really needed to have a tangible view of the interfaces uh, to see if it felt right or not and doing so is basically just killing the usability for your users because. Uh, you, you're continuously breaking people. And uh, so at the beginning, most of the work was uh, solve searching up to a point where I really wanted to, to explore all the different kind of designs and, and see the, the ones that I felt were the, the best one. And for example, the registries, there's a lot of small registries. And these registries really help to, uh, for example, to have a domain-specific set of known devices or something. So for example, there's a GPIO registry, but there's also the, the registry for each of the buses. And um, 
I don't know if it in in the end people will actually think it's a good thing, uh, but I think it is. So I decided to, to do it, and I feel that it, it's kind of neat because afterward you don't program for a specific board anymore, and that's one of the things I really like is that all the boards are really abstracted away. You just have a string for the the name of the GPIO you want to use, and you can use the the, the string of the pin from uh, the board name or uh, from the CPU name or any other kind of aliases that you want. And that's the only string you need to change to be able to run on a different kind of hardware. And uh, I felt it was pretty neat because you don't have any, you don't need to reference uh, packages that are board specific. They are there if you want to use them, but you're never required to use them. And uh, that that was one of the key points I, I really wanted to focus on. So you had mentioned you were playing with some other things for um, hardware-based projects too. Like uh, I forget what episode it was, but a few episodes ago we had talked about Go Crazy, which was kind of like an interesting way of creating Go applications and just deploying them out to, you know, your Raspberry Pi without thinking about it. Yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of an impressive project. Um, so I played with it a bit. Uh, Proof sadly doesn't work on it yet. I tried to commit on fixing it, but I didn't. Uh, but there's a lot of challenges on this project because you obviously need to write a ton of code to make it work. But I really like the idea of just getting rid of, of C completely. Uh, as a C, as a next C plus plus developer, I've, I'm fully behind with with that. <laughs> so, so that's uh, that's a very interesting route. And so, my big question is if it's going to be able to attract enough developer to be able to to make it into a, a fully supported platform. But uh, if it can for dedicated devices, it's very neat because. Uh, first, it implements the dual partition uh, mechanism uh, that is used in Chrome OS and also used now in, in Android, where you basically have two copies of your operating system. And when you upgrade, you just upgrade the copy that is currently not used, and you reboot and you just switch the pointer to the other partition. And that's really amazing because you can do upgrades in a way that is very safe and uh, very simple to do. And the then you just mount a third partition to be the partition that you have your user data. Uh, so that's basically the mechanism mechanism it uses. And um, I think it's it's something that is the way of the future. Basically, it's just implementing the way of the future takes a lot of work. But um, I really hope that it, it it's going to be uh, to be to become more popular. Yeah, I mean, um, CoreOS also does. The uh, two partitions where it upgrades the kernel into one and then switches them and fails back. They actually they use um, Chrome's update system to do that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's also based on Chrome OS. So yeah, <laughs> Chrome OS is a great <laughs> operating system, you know, yes. by Chromium OS. But yeah. <laughs> Carlicia, is your is your Chrome your Chromebook purchase sounding better and better now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now that uh, is that called? Um, oh, what's the name of that update system? Omaha, is that right? Uh, is it using? No, it's. Uh, I'm trying to recall internally. <laughs> Good question. I forget. I recall this server code, but yeah. 
I'm trying to recall what's open source and what is not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Secret Uh, thing, secret thing. You know what I ran into on on the internet two days ago? I was um, doing my typical late night surfing through GitHub thing, looking for interesting projects to star and talk about on the show. And I ran across uh, a fork of CoreOS that uh, Jesse Frizzell maintains. And it looks very clearly to me like in her fork of CoreOS's um, build scripts that she is using CoreOS as a desktop OS because she's added X11 and all kinds of other stuff to it. And I I can't wait to find some time to talk to her about that, maybe at GopherCon and find out what that looks like. That is crazy because CoreOS, it's got Chrome's updating system, but it's Gen 2 in the background. So it's it's really powerful you know, how you could build a whole OS just by changing a couple of config files and, and rerunning a script and waiting a couple hours. Yeah, but it, my main feature request for Chrome OS would be to be able to run Docker images. So that's kind of aligned with, with the idea. Uh, I think it would be a great idea, but yeah, I, I failed to convince the, the leadership to, to get that. <laughs> just build your own. I could. <laughs> it's more work. Uh, yeah, the, the, the foundation there is really good, uh, and that's that's very interesting project. Um, yeah, it's funny because right now I'm using a, a MacBook Pro, and the only reason is that it's the only laptop where you can connect three different monitors to it. So <laughs> that's that's literally the only reason. I only run a shell terminal and uh, to another workstation and Chrome, and that's it. That that's really the only thing I run in it. It's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, so one thing I would really like is that actually one of the sister project, which is named Skia, they, they started a lab. It's, I don't have much detail to give, but one, which is really nice, which basically what they did is um, they booted the Raspberry Pi from the network. So I don't know if they will be IP that I'll talk about it. But the idea is basically you create a really, really small uh boot partition that basically just mount over NFS the real uh, root file system and then you boot from there. And one of the nice things with that is that then you can um, basically boot all of your raspberries. The flashing the card is extremely fast because it has almost nothing on it. And then you just connect your Raspberry Pis and then they, they just boot the operating system from your server and whenever you want to update the operating system on, on the Raspberry Pis, you just update the OS image shared over NFS, and that's it. And uh, that's actually one thing I would have liked to do with UHGI because then I would lose the problem of uh, persistence on the uh, on the workers. Uh, but then I would have to do it for a lot of different uh, boards, and it's work. And yeah, work is hard. <laughs> so that's that's the problem I'm facing right now. So one other cool thing that you were working on was actually an uh, kind of like a VI clone, right? In Go, and now it's in Rust. But yeah, how did how did that uh, turn out? Most all of us wish we could get rid of Vim script and just write a new. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, I hate Vim script with the uh, with the vengeance. Uh, I don't know; it's just an horrible language, and uh, <laughs> I, I love Vim Go, but I mean, I cannot make any sense of. Vim script otherwise than that. Um, I feel I feel for fatigue for the amount yeah. of Vim script <laughs> right, to make it work. 
Yeah, it's, it's incredible work, but oh my god! And so yeah, actually, I've been experimenting with that like uh, six or seven years ago, and uh, that's something that I had on the back of my mind. But I knew that it was a lot of work to to try it out, and uh, basically, I wanted to do an experiment. And uh, the experiment basically was to have a, a client. Uh, server version of a text editor where the front end uh, is a client and uh, then the back end is actually the one doing the IO for the files and things like that, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it and you're now to the point where your text editor is a client server architecture, but <laughs> it's a great idea. So the reason I wanted to do that was uh, my feeling was, well, then you can just go get all the plugins you want, and the, you make the plugins as out-of-process plugins, and uh, you just communicate with the plugins with, um, uh, I was using NetRPC uh, with Gob encoding, but the idea was you make sure that the interfaces fit are exactly the same. So basically, I wrote a hashing algorithm of, of uh, interfaces through uh, reflection. So basically, it, it's kind of a come good but with uh, with hashes, which were really my Windows experience uh, shine through there. Uh, but the uh, the idea is that um, you uh, you use reflection to enumerate all the the methods in the interface, and if it references uh, tracks, you also go into these tracks and hash all the the public. Uh, member uh, of this truck, and you recurse until you end. You go to the end, and you have only basic types. And uh, you hash. You basically you hash each of the names and the types, and uh, you add zeros and the old character in there. And you basically generate a dis- deterministic hash in the end, and that represents um, a way to communicate with another party that the interfaces that you're using are exactly the same. So then you get a form of binary compatibility because you know that both are using exactly the same structure definitions. So I started experimenting on that and then uh, out of process plugins and things like that. But the problem is that I forgot to actually work on the editor part. So, so basically the, the editor part was really crappy, but the rest was really great. And uh, then uh, Ralph Lauer, uh, started working on, uh, so basically I named the editor uh, WI because it was like a follow-up of VI and it was kind of a pun on that. And then uh, Ralph said, well, you know what? I really want to try it in Rust instead. So basically uh, the thing is that he actually knows how to write a text editor, unlike me. So he started writing it, and uh, it's uh, pretty amazing. Uh, so the it's the it's the core idea is slightly similar, except that it's in Rust. But the thing is that it is he, using JSON RPC instead of uh, binary uh, format. And the thing is that the encoding in JSON is a uh, trivial compared to everything else. So it's actually not a performance issue at all. Uh, but on the other hand, then you don't actually have any kind of language lock-in. So because of that, you can write your plugins or your front end in any language and it doesn't matter anymore. So it's actually a net win. Uh, it's much better in practice. Uh, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I just need to learn Rust though. So I haven't got to do that yet. <laughs> I wonder whether gRPC would be a good option as well. Because there's a, 
they have support for a number of languages now. Yeah, but I, I don't recall if uh, you looked at it, but I would have stuck with JSON RPC too because the thing is that most of the time it's local. I mean, you're running the front end and the back end on the same uh, system. So bandwidth is not too much of a problem. Then there's the uh, the performance of the amount of data. So gRPC is is uh, more compact than uh, than uh, JSON RPC. But on the other end, gRPC depends on implicitly depends on HTTP/V2, where JSON RPC is very easy to just uh, do over uh, a dump pipe, pipe, basically over STD uh, out and STD in. So in practice. It's simpler to use JSON RPC, and because of that, it's simpler to do it in languages like uh, like using Node.js or things like that. So I think I will use the I, I will use the same idea. I wouldn't use uh, gRPC because of that. gRPC would be fun though if you could have a UI on your local box and then just host the server side somewhere else. Because if you're going client server, they don't necessarily have to be on the same host, right? Yeah, I think it's actually a goal. Uh, I haven't tried personally. Uh, I would have to try out, but I think it's one of the goals actually to be able to do that. Uh, for example, actually one of the nice advantage of doing the way it's done right now is that actually the the, the front end could be a web page, basically. Uh, so then you get to the cloud nine territory or things like that. Uh, but the nice thing is that then your plugins are still running on the host, they are not running on the web server itself. That would be really nice. I'd enjoy that a lot. Having a web-based editor? No, just having the the server being a different machine. You know, I could have a Linux desktop or a Linux headless server running all of my code, but the editor be on Windows or Mac. Or your Chromebook or... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yes, I think it's a... It's basically the root of the future the thing i don't know it's it needs to happen basically <laughs> it just needs to happen i just need to get out of him eventually that's really something that needs to happen eventually because it's funny because every time like for example i get to a raspberry pi i want something that i can start working on it right away and i don't want to mess with with a lot of packages um so if i can just scp executable and start being productive, it's it's going to be awesome. Okay, so I think we are just about out of time. But so one thing we like to do um, at the end of every episode is we do something called Free Software Friday, where all of us kind of give a shout out to just a project or a maintainer, and it does not have to be Go of an open source project that kind of makes our lives easier. Does everybody have a project they want to? And uh, Mark Antoine, if if you have one, that, that's awesome. If you don't, that's cool too. Um, we'll just kind of go around. Carlisa, did you have a project you want to mention this week? I do. It's a. Uh, it's called the Copt. I think it's called the Copt. That'd be my guess too. Yes, it's Doc Opt. Doc Opt. There we go. I knew there was something there that I wasn't doing right. I just thought it was a really well organized project. I love it that when you fetch the arguments. You specify right there if it's supposed to be used as a boolean or string. So I might I might use it when next time I need to do a CLI. Oh, that's really awesome. How about you, Brian? Did you have anything? I do. I, I played a couple days ago with uh, WX Go, which is a WX Widgets wrapper for Go, 
And we've been bemoaning the lack of uh, GUI capabilities in Go for a long time. But uh, this repository, which is at github.com slash don'tpanic92 slash wxgo, is incredibly complete and works beautifully. I tested it on Mac, Linux, and Windows using a, a really small app that I wrote because I'm not a WX widgets expert. But the exact same code compiled and built and looked native on all three platforms. And I don't know what else people would possibly need out of a GUI than that. So I was really impressed. It's uh, nice to work with if, as far as writing evented window management things go. And very complete. No panics, no crashes, no runs, no drips, no errors. Nice. How are you, Mark Antoine? Did you have anybody you want to give a shout out to? Or any projects? Yeah, well, I think you talk about it every week, but the caddy is really awesome. Uh, and yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to live without it. Uh, the other thing is, I actually started playing with the Shiny and uh, from uh, Nigel Toe, and uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, in my case, it's actually to be uh, usable on the pocket chip, and it made it really trivial to be able to just open a full screen window and and start drawing on onto it, which is very useful for for my use case. Oh, cool! What what library is this? Uh, shiny. So it's actually on the X repository on Golang. Um, I'll just paste the link. Um, yeah, that's the experimental GUI layer. Yes. So it's very experimental, but it works. And that's good enough for me. <laughs> now, the one I have is actually something I recently came across. And it's here's a pronunciation thing. And thankfully, on the readme, they tell you how to pronounce it. It's called Hecket. And it's a hex, they call it the hex editor from hell. And I can say that on air because it actually says that in the slogan. So it's not me swearing. So it's like a tabbed interface, but you can, uh, it's a hex editor. But the cool thing is, is like you can use Vim commands to move around it. And most of us on the show love Vim movement keys. Basically, you can hit uh, key combinations to switch the endianness or the way the bytes underneath your cursor and are interpreted. So you can look at them as like integers or as strings and change the endianness around. So it's actually really cool for looking at just a, a file of bytes, trying to kind of reverse engineer what it is. And I'll post a link in the GoTime channel for that. And with that, I want to thank everybody for being on the show this week, especially thank you to Mark Antoine and happy birthday to Brian. Yeah, happy birthday. And Where's the singing? I right. heard there was going to be singing. I, was I thought we agreed we were never going to sing again. Yeah, I was promised the, singing. <laughs> the latency was so <laughs> bad. Gosh. We need, uh, I don't even think Jonathan Youngbug can save us in the editing for, for that. <laughs> <laughs> he does amazing work, but I don't think that's fixable. <laughs> so huge thank you to Mark Antoine for coming on the show. Uh, Shout out to our sponsor, TopTal, uh, for helping make this show possible. Definitely encourage uh, everybody to share the show with fellow Go programmers. You can subscribe by going to gotime.fm. We are at gotime.fm on Twitter. If you want to be on the show, have suggestions for guests or questions, topics, uh, hit us up on github.com slash gotime.fm slash ping. And with that, bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Happy birthday, Brian. <laughs> bye, everybody. Thank you. Happy birthday. Thanks for coming on, Marc Antoine. Yeah, it was great. 
All right, that wraps up this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time at the changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to TopTal for sponsoring this show. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, at thefastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.